Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, and with us today, we have Teresa Payton. Teresa is a global trial-leading cybersecurity CEO author, keynote speaker, actress. Her company, Four Life Solutions, is a cybersecurity intelligence and operations provider, which has been on the front lines of hundreds and hundreds of incident responses. She made history as the first female White House CIO. Before overseeing that, she did IT operations for more than two, I think it was actually three big financial services organizations out there. And she also goes ahead and finds time to write several books. And her latest book, if you haven't seen it, you got to go over and go grab it, is Manipulated Inside the Cyber War, Hijacking Elections and Distort the Truth. And that was just released here in 2020. She's sought after by media outlets, conferences, magazines, radio shows, podcasts. She also found time to star on a TV show series. If you haven't seen that, go back and take a look at that. She identifies in the show merging trends, techniques to help combat cyber threats from impacting the Internet of Things to securing big data, managing cybersecurity risk, and teaching other people how to go ahead and pay it forward and be a great thought leader in our industry is what Teresa does best. Teresa, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, I've been looking forward to this. This is like kind of the the highlight of my week to spend this time with you. So thanks for inviting me. Great, Teresa. Teresa, I just have to ask, you know, we've talked before and I've seen it right a couple of times. You really talk about your dad quite a bit and what a great role model he was with you and really encouraging you quite a bit. And and I love when he had talked to you a little bit about, you know, about being underestimated and you know what, better people better not underestimate you. And you know, I was thinking about, you know, even come about when all of a sudden you get offered the CIO position, the first woman CIO position in the White House. You know, how did you even process that, you know, as a leader? I mean, you know, it's exciting to have that offer, but at the same time, most of us were like, yeah, ooh, you know, I had to be kind of scary too. How did you even go about processing any of that stuff and, and then feel confidence in yourself that you could do that role? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, it's funny. I remember, so my parents are both my heroes. They're the epitome of servant style leadership in family, community, in their faith and at work. And my mom was a Marine Corps brat. My dad was an Air Force and Army brat. My dad's career Marine and then career law enforcement And they just were incredible examples. And I still remember I came home from work one day and my parents called me on the phone to see how I was doing. And I was really frustrated. And I said, I am so sick and tired of being underestimated. I was in a meeting. I'm the youngest one there. And I had all these ideas. I kept trying to share. People talked over me. I was the only woman in the room. And some people even said my ideas that I said 30 minutes earlier and I said, I'm just, I'm just frustrated today. And my dad said to me, and, and this has stuck with me my whole career. He said, your greatest gift 
is being underestimated because you can operate in stealth mode and nobody will ever see you coming. So just remember when you're underestimated, turn that into positive energy and just go for it. And um, so that has stuck with me. And funny, you should ask about the White House because it's a phone call I almost didn't return. I thought I was being socially engineered. I didn't know anybody at the White House. I'd just come back from maternity leave with my second kid. And I'm so glad I took that phone call. But I remember in the interview process, Rebecca saying, how am I qualified for this job? And it is kind of a unique interview process because most of the questions you would normally ask, I didn't have a clearance to receive the answer. So when I would ask things about budget or FTE or the top three initiatives, I didn't have a clearance to be given the answer. So it's kind of an unusual interview process. So I finally just said, how am I even qualified for this job? And what was really fascinating was I had just a phenomenal uh, leader in the office administration director, John Straub. Um, he's an incredible leader, very humble. And he said, Teresa, you have responsibility for global operations at the bank, highly regulated. You're in a fishbowl. Everybody's, the systems that you run are all in the spotlight and you figure out how to make it all work. You know how to fight fraudsters and cyber criminals. He goes, believe me, the things you don't know, we can teach you, but there's a lot you know that we don't know. And so that gave me sort of that comfort level. I'm also a faith-based person. So I spent a lot of time asking people to pray for me for discernment and, um, and you know, just really felt like I was being called and led. And this was my way to serve. My husband had been in the military. I did not serve in the military. I was a military spouse. And so I felt like, you know, if our men and women were having to go to Afghanistan, which they were at the time, I thought I could certainly hop on a plane or hop in the car and go serve my country. Well, that's amazing. You know, you're in rooms with the biggest and the brightest and the best. There must have been like some really cool leadership principles you learned or, or how to even like handle stress. You know, what kind of things could you pass on to us along those lines about handling, you know, key situations like that that we face day to day as CISOs and CIOs? No, it's great. And, you know, it's interesting. There are some enduring principles that I learned during my time in banking and certainly learned during my time at the White House, which is truly this global 24 by 7 operation. And those actually applied to each and every one of us going through this global pandemic. And hopefully soon we'll be talking about being moving into a post-pandemic phase. And that is you have to pace yourself. You know, the work is never going to stop. And don't allow the pace to run you. You have to find ways to put up those guardrails and to say, Yes, this is a priority, but everything can't be the number one priority. And you, you know, spend time for stack ranking uh, priorities. The other thing I would say is a lot of times I hear people say, I'm trying to get a day off or I'm looking forward to a long weekend so I can finally renew and recharge. Build five to 10 minutes into each workday and look for that opportunity to recharge, you might not get that full day off, I'm sad to say, but if you can find that time to recharge, and I'll tell you what recharging doesn't include. It does not include doom scrolling on social media or different news websites, right? So if you're taking five minutes, go for a walk, just look outside. You know, I always try to have flowers from the farmer's market in my office, find that bright spot, 
and plan it into every day so that you have that moment to renew and recharge. I also, Rebecca, you and I talked about this before. I've got the system of the five F's, which I developed as I was heading into the White House. Um, I had some really good mentors say to me, you know, you're going to burn yourself out if you don't pace yourself and you need a system. I'm very creative, but I like to have creativity be within like a process framework. So I created a color-coded system that works for me and everybody needs to find their own, but it's called my five F's. And I book time on my calendar based on my five F's. So my five F's are family, friends, faith and fellowship in the community. And then the last piece is what am I fighting for every day at work? Because we spend so much time at work. And then I color code those five F's. And as I look at my calendar at the end of the month, some months it's a little lopsided. And I make a commitment to myself to actually change my allocation for the next 30 days. Everybody has to find the right system that works for them, but that's something that um, has really served me well over the years. Well, that's, that's awesome. I just started using some like habit apps and I list like, like, like my top tap app, you know, habits, like physical, mental, spiritual things along those lines and use. Do you have some tools and stuff like that that you use that you find that's really helpful to, to be able to monitor all that? Yeah. I mean, I have the color coding in my calendar. I've got a couple faith-based things that I do. I do like some of the meditation apps that you mentioned, Rebecca. I'm a big Peloton user. I'm not always on the bike. Sometimes it's their meditation. Sometimes their sleep meditation. I love to run. So I use that to you know try to motivate me and hold myself accountable to the mileage. I'm currently training to do a, a virtual half marathon at Thanksgiving. And so kind of keeping my like, hey, you're not going to make it if you don't get out there today. And so holding myself accountable. And what I, I love about so many of these apps that are out there is you can sort of set aside that time for mindfulness and grab those five minutes, you know, that five minute meditation, or even just looking out the window, you set a timer, put on the right kind of music. Maybe it's, you know, something that gets your heartbeat racing and gets you really energized, or maybe something to bring you down a little bit because of the type of day you're having. No, it's great. I'm glad that you mentioned physical fitness. I've really been working my mind this past year and I'm doing a, another dual athlon because swimming's overrated on uh, myself. And I do find times where I used to only, when you talk about cutting out the noise, I used to only be listening always to like, how to be a better sister, how to be a better sister. And I stopped that. Even if it's, I play trombone as well. Even if it's listening to cello drones, because, you know, there's a note I'm just not quite hitting in symphony, but trying to, to mix it up, do something different. So I really appreciate you doing that. And, you know, leading into what we see today in 2020, 2021, we also see that a lot of CIOs, but especially a lot of CISOs, Coming out to we're just getting burned out. And you see that nutrition rate for CISOs is quite high. And then you see where leadership and companies not exactly sure where to even put CISOs right now. They're just really in flux. Do you have any viewpoints on that? On one, how to help companies better select CIOs and CISOs in the right roles, and also to help people who are like going, I'm not in the right roles for me. How do I kind of spin out? And then how do I actually get to the heart and core of who I am as an individual? and get to a better position for myself. you have words of wisdom on those lines for our audience? Wow. I'll just talk about what I am seeing, and I hope it, it helps. 
I wish I had kind of like a, a really great ecosystem answer to give to everybody. But here's what I would say on kind of the burnout. I always caution CIOs and CISOs that, you know, so for the CIO, you're looking at technical debt, you're looking at transformation and innovation strategies, and then you've got to run business as usual, right? So that's typically a big part of the CIO job is sort of these three different hats you have to wear. And part of that for business continuity is resiliency, reliability, recoverability. And the CISO organization also has responsibility for recoverability, resiliency, and reliability as well. And I always say, when you look at those three R's and you talk about resiliency, it actually starts with you as the leader. You are no good to anybody else, and you're going to be no good to the playbooks if you're not resilient yourself. And you can't be resilient if you use up everything you have. There's nothing left to give. So that's where holding yourself accountable to some type of a system, just like you hold, you know, if you have to deliver on a compliance framework, or you have to deliver on a certification, right? You're holding yourself, you're benchmarking yourself, you're holding yourself accountable and giving the systems and the processes and the outcomes a scorecard. You have to start here. You know, it's sort of like when you get on the airlines, right? I've got three kids and I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe they tell you if you're traveling with small children, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping others. But then when you really think about it, if you pass out, you're no good to your kids and they won't know what to do. So you have to make sure that resiliency plans start with yourself. And that's healthy sets of patterns and guidelines. Now, I also think that we need to reimagine the CIO and the CISO roles. We're asking people to do superhuman efforts that are just impossible And so I I really think it's right for transformative thinking. So for example, what if there were kind of co-CISO roles or there were shift CISO roles? What if there were ways to, you know, a lot of organizations don't want to have a top heavy management structure, but maybe that does apply here within sort of CISO and CIO organizations, given the fact that Everyone is now a technology company. You just happen to do something else for your revenue model. And everyone is a cybersecurity company because if you're not, you're going to get hacked and not be resilient and recoverable, right? And so because of that, how do we think about these teams being more of a 24 by 7 operation, not just the tools, not just the technology, but actually the people themselves. And we haven't really addressed it that way. Maybe you have a security operations center where you've got shift work, but you don't really have shift work for the leadership team. So we've got to reimagine and transform our thinking there. Well, those are really great points. And and tying back into a point you had earlier, and you talked about prioritization quite a bit. I know that's one thing we do get hit. You know, when you're trying to run global, you're going 24-7, you're getting hit right and left, it seems like. You know, ping pong ball doesn't even justify it anymore. How do you go about when you get inundated with so many requests? How do you go about trying to figure out what's your first first, as I like to call them? What do you do to try and figure that out? Yeah, it's one of the things I love to water ski. I don't get to do it nearly enough. And I remember when I was first learning to water ski, It was actually my business partner took us out on his business partner in banking. So my team supported 
all of um, the problem, commercial, small business, middle market lending, all of the officers, the loan officers, and sort of the customer relationships. So we supported all of their technology platforms. It's a very stressful job. And if you get something wrong with those platforms, it's really not good you know, for the bank. So our business partner who we supported, he took us out on his boat. And I remember him teaching me how to water ski. And one of the first things he said to me was, you always need to have slack because you never know when you're going to hit a wake. And if your arms are straight out, when you hit that wake, you're going to take a spill. And so he would be yelling at me from the boat, make sure you keep slack, make sure you keep the slack. And that's the same with the workplace. You have to build in open spaces on your work calendar. And that allows you to, when that thing happens and it comes in and you need to deal with it, that allows you to have that time, to have that slack, to be able to react. I can tell you, it seems like the days that I don't practice that and I've got everything in 15 and 30 minute increments, that's the day something happens and it's just like unrecoverable. You know, there's something that just becomes urgent on fire and I had no slack to make room for it. And it can be done. You just have to plan it. I'll give you another example. We decided this summer in the dog days of summer, we knew sort of to plan for the unplanned. We weren't sure what was going to happen with incident response, with ransomware events, et cetera. And we already had a pretty strenuous level workload of work. So I made the decision that unless a client had an ongoing incident, that every Friday for nine Fridays in a row, July and August, that our employees would be off. There would be no formal meetings and that Fridays were kind of a day to renew and recharge in case the next Friday you were on an incident response team. We then moved into, we made a commitment to the employees that September and October, Fridays are called fun Fridays. There are no internal meetings on Fridays unless it's something fun that you want to work on, like a R&D project or a passion project. If you have to have a meeting with a client because it's incident response, you have to do that. But if it's not an incident response and it's a regular meeting, get it done between Monday through Thursday, giving people back desk time to give them slack. And so we're trying to, in this very difficult and challenging time for everybody, to find creative ways to reimagine the work week and give people that flexibility. Just saying, get your work done and not giving people guardrails is really too hard on people right now. And so we thought, isn't it nice to know you have a desk day to finish your work, to do great work for the clients, to do great work by your teammates, and to know and look forward to that Friday to like putting a nice bow on things, unless of course there's an incident response. So there's different ways you can do it. Not what's working for my company may not work for everybody else, but those are some examples of how we're trying to make a difference. No, thank you for that. I know you and I always align on this on protecting the human, protecting our workforce. And I don't like fear, uncertainty, and doubt on my team, no FUD. And I do the same thing. I like Fridays and I try to get everybody off earlier on Fridays, just give them that little peace of mind. But you handle so many incidents. One, you've handled them throughout your career and your company really strive, not strives, but that's what you're known well to do. What do you recommend people do that when you do get that incident? Not everybody has really major incidents. And the first thing you do is you, you know, you tense up and you get 
And I'm like, no, just like playing trombone, when you tense, your tone goes out. When your team tenses, you don't hold, have that free thought. What do you guys do and what do you recommend that when people have those situations come and you want to tense up as a human, how do you work through those first 30 seconds, three minutes, five minutes to really go ahead and be able to tackle those more mindfully? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, well, you know, one of the things you can do is practice, rehearse having to deal with an incident, rehearse having to deal with, you know, bad news or a system outage. And just even if it's just a light framework of a playbook of, oh gosh, I hope this never happens. But if it does, let's just sort of practice that we can't access Slack all day today. What would we do instead? Or let's just practice um, Zoom is down. You know, these are all kind of things that can can happen that are just productivity busters. And then there's things that can be a lot worse. But you know, I observed when Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were out for about six to six and a half hours, I observed a lot of people saying, for people that we communicate with in Europe, we don't have any other way to get a hold of them. There were also some small to mid-sized businesses, they don't have websites. They have Facebook and Instagram is how they actually sell retail products and do customer service with their clients. So be asking yourself now, can I practice having to respond to some type of an incident that would make my day really challenging? And by practicing, you're going to get that muscle memory so that when you hit any type of an incident, even if it's when you didn't practice, you, you'll kind of have your own framework of like, take a deep breath in. Okay. Don't forget to exhale and breathe back in again. Okay. Now what, what do we have as a playbook or what can we do? So you're right, Rebecca, it's, you know, our world is so fast paced at work and at home, our home lives. There's a lot going on. We're being bombarded with a lot. And in some cases, some people are still working from home. And so there, that separation isn't there like it used to be. And so maybe you like not having the commute, but then again, like there's work always calling you when you walk by it, even on Sunday. So finding those ways to practice that incident, having a response. Also think about if you know you have emotional triggers to things, have somebody you know and trust that's a colleague. And maybe you have like a certain code with them. And so if they see maybe you're kind of putting yourself into a danger zone in your response, Maybe it's a simple word. Maybe they, you know, scratch their nose when you're getting a certain way and only the two of you know what that is. And that may be just enough to kind of help you step back away from the ledge. No, it's funny that, that you mentioned that I've always done it with my teams and I think people know from my past, I used to be a government auditor. So I used to go around the world auditing. And so I would have audit teams and I gave them a key word all the time. And I know one time I gave guacamole. And so they said, hey, we really want to go get some chips and guacamole. It was like, holy crap, Batman, I got to get out of here. We, we need to leave because I'm about to blow. I would tell you, I got done with a, an effort and they threw us a party with chips and guacamole. I ate the stuff. I hated it. But they didn't know the whole, there was a whole keyword that you needed a break. And so I've always worked with my teams on a code word. They always look at me like I'm weird. But I think having that code word that you know if it's said, that you just need to go ahead and, like you said, that safety valve, go ahead and, and disperse that safety valve. We've also mentioned about, you know, 
when we talk about trying to get resources for us as a team, CIO, CISO, CTO, and, and that's always, again, key point, 2020, our budgets got slashed. Now, where do we really need to be mindful budgets and things like that? What, what do you look at when you're trying to prioritize budgets and you're trying to get more budgets? A lot of times it's hard for us making that business case to grab that. We have a hard time tying that together. And through your years, you've learned how to do that really well. What some words of wisdoms you can give our audience on how to make the business case and what do we need in technology? Sure. I mean, I think, I hope that most people listening to this, Rebecca, the fact that they're just even listening tells me that they probably know this already. You know, playing the, we have to do it otherwise compliance and regulatory, or we have to do it because fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that doesn't work as well with the business unit. So you'll you'll get the bare minimum if that is your only strategy. Those are certainly both important. But what I tell CISOs that you need to really do is understand what business problem is your organization trying to solve? What are the human stories? How do humans, the customers, interact with the technology and to interact with your company? How do your employees interact with technology to get their job done? And once you understand the user stories, then have a conversation with the executives who make the decisions on budgets and priorities and say, you know, here are the user stories and here's where we need to inject more security to secure the human in the foreground, in the background, and show how you weave the security into the user story. You're going to have a much better time helping sell the business case if you relate it into the business story. If you start talking firewalls and multi-factor authentication absent of those user stories, you're going to lose the business executives. The other piece you can do, it is hard to show return on investment. But one of the things you can do is if you are doing incident response playbooks, you can say, look, based on where our maturity is today, if this incident were to happen, my back of the napkin calculation is this is what the expenses would look like to the organization. Okay, now, if I were to have this playbook, but implement either more staff or certain technology solutions, I believe I could reduce the expense that would be created by this incident by this amount. So you can actually crosswalk your executives with you playbook by playbook to show them how the investment makes a difference. Candidly, you can show yourself. You know, sometimes I have CISOs, they're so bought into, I got to have this product and this solution, and I've got to have one pane of glass, and I got to have all these. And then you add it all up, and they're like, people just don't care. I, I don't know why. And then you sit down and you say, okay, well, here's your playbook. How much do you think it would cost without it? Okay, so you want to spend a gazillion dollars. How much more money are you going to save? Not much. I don't know about you, but if it was your checkbook, is that would that be a winning business case for you? So part of it is, is it kind of gets you bought into what you're asking for as well. And that can be a great way to get closer to some type of a return on investment for your executives. Well, I think those are great points. I, I, I talk quite a bit about the return on the efficiency and the return on the investment. That's really what they want, even though that's not what they're saying. And then tying it into the enterprise risk management. What does that really look like? What does it look for personnel, finance, and that? Even though they might look at you cross-eyed initially, and I've had companies do that, I tell people it ends up long-term, 
I think, a little bit better for you, not on a stay that you've been on. You know, I'd be amiss, though, if I did not talk about women in security, women in CIO, CTO, and, and top positions. And, and we're still not quite getting there. And I know that you do a lot in, in STEM and things along those lines. What's your viewpoint on what's going on and, and women trying to make a headway on getting some of these top positions and having our voices heard? Sure. You know, for starters, we still continue to have an ongoing brand problem. You know, I'll ask people if somebody says cybercrime, you know, what's the first image people typically think of? And it's usually a man in a hoodie. It's probably bluish green with ones and zeros. And I understand, you know, it's, it, but it's one of those things where it's hard for, from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, for underrepresented groups, including females, to really say, well, I see myself there. I mean, although I've got, you know, half of my closet is hoodies. Who doesn't love a great hoodie? But, you know, the idea of somebody alone in the dark and it's kind of gloomy and doomy looking is just unappealing. I would say the other thing too is, is diversity and inclusion isn't just who you hire to be your employees. It's also who do you hire as your consultants and your services providers? And so there continues to be a real challenge where there's a, a bias towards, you know, kind of the big names or a bias towards only certain types of organizations. And I get a little disheartened when I see kind of the leadership teams on the websites. And it's rare to see, you know, a truly DNI looking leadership team. And it's not just looks, it's backgrounds. Where did they go to school? Did they skip college because they did something else instead and went straight into the workforce? And so to me, diversity and inclusion, there's gender, but there's also your walk of life. There's your cultural background, your ethnicity. It, it all makes up for a very rich tapestry. And if we're going to solve the cyber criminal problem and sort of the rising tide of cybercrime, it's going to take new and innovative and creative thinking, which means it's going to take a very rich tapestry of all walks of life, including gender um, inclusion. So I highly encourage women to seek out both male and female mentors, but I also say don't give up. So if you find culturally things are not rewarding and satisfying for you, reach out to other colleagues in the industry and make sure you align your passions and you're working at the right culture for you, don't give up on the career in STEM just because you didn't find the right place. Just keep searching and keep networking and reaching out. You will eventually find your calling and your passion in the right place for you where you can thrive. Now, those are great words of wisdom. I, I tell people to do a Venn diagram. I was speaking to a woman last night until about two o'clock this morning, helping her out, thinking through some, some issues. And the thing is, I told her, I said, like you said, is you need to follow your core. And there are great companies out there that can support your core. And don't be afraid to walk away from a bad situation um, as well. Sometimes that is the best gift you can give yourself. When we talk about being good to yourself is walking away. You know, your company has a great mission. And I know that everything we've talked to you today about when you look at diversity and things like that, you have in your company. And you have a great story about how you even came up with your company name. Can you talk to us about that and talk to us about how you have learned all these lessons you've learned, how you applied it to developing the company you have today? 
Sure. We actually spent some time actually as a leadership team and talking with our clients and our employees to create a codified culture book. So we have something called the Fortalist Way. And I'll get back to what a Fortalist is in a moment and how I got to that point. But uh, it was funny, we did a, an offsite. This is prior to the pandemic as a leadership team at the Rosewood. And I personally paid for it. And I actually had the leadership team from the Rosewood in Washington, D.C., come and present to us because the Rosewood has something that they refer to as a sense of place. Uh, The Rosewood is actually run by a, a woman. So it's a global hotel operation run by a woman. And they have something called the Rosewood approach. And the Rosewood approach is a couple of things. One is meeting the clients where they are in that moment at that destination. So the Rosewood has standardized a set of high excellent standards, but their hotels are nothing alike because each place has a sense of place. So very much the Rosewood in Washington, DC is a sense of Georgetown. It's a sense of nerve center of the United States and and power seat of the world. Very different from the one they have out on the West Coast, which is more like innovation and creativity and you're near Silicon Valley. And so they came and presented to us and they talked about the fact that they actually codified everything in a culture book. So we actually spent dedicated time talking about what we want our culture to feel like to our customers And we want our culture to feel like to our teammates. Fortalist, what's interesting, I was trying to figure out how to name the company. I have no entrepreneurs in my family. We are, the family business is protecting and defending. So it's law enforcement and US military. And so my husband and I were sitting down, he's former Naval Academy, former Navy, and he works in banking now. And we were trying to come up with the name for the company. And I said, I want it to be a real word. I don't want it to be my name. I don't, you know, just for me personally, I just want it to be a real word. And so when I started describing what I wanted to do, that I wanted to look many years out on the horizon and think about what's coming and then be an advisor to executives, to CISOs. And then in sort of that worst moment, if things were coming sort of on the outskirts of, you know, a company or an industry to be able to protect and defend until sort of like a bigger group showed up. And my husband was like, well, in medieval times, that would be called a fortalist. That's what the kings used to have up and they'd have an elite unit that would kind of sneak out and kind of see what's going on, come back and advise the king. They had an elite unit of, you know, kind of like operatives who would do different things and they weren't the king's army. The king's army was something different. So I looked it up and there was no cybersecurity firm named Fortalist. And so I was like, okay, great. We're going to register that trademark and, and off we go. And then we spent some time with a wonderful company called Brick SF. They're based out of the Bay Area and just a really great creative company. And so we spent some time with them coming up with the brand story, everything. They thought of like certain fonts, colors. And sort of that that brand promise and brand story and brand imagery. And then years later is when we went to the Rosewood and had that conversation, which led to the culture book. So it's all, you know, many years in the making, but 
but it is really important to have that North star and to be able to, you know, say to your clients, like, here's our core enduring principles and hold us accountable to these. If we're not delivering on that brand promise, I want to know because I, I want the opportunity to fix it. Oh, that's so great. Cause I tell people I, I get tired of reading words on the wall. They're not part of your core fabric. So it's really great that you guys really determine together what that core fabric is and then continue to hold each other accountable for the core fabric, which is just wonderful. Teresa, as we start to wrap up here, you know, how do people get a hold of you and your company if they want your services or you personally, if they like to go ahead and, and engage you in speaking engagements? What's the best way to do, you know, both of those? Sure. Thank you for that, Rebecca. Well, we have company accounts on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. We have a group. It's for both men and women, a safe space to promote more women in STEM on LinkedIn called Help a Sister Up that you can join. And we tell people, We've seen all kinds of amazing organic things happen there. We've seen people become mentors, become mentees, get jobs, post jobs, share research and information. That can be a very organic, authentic place. We don't overly manage it. You know, we allow people to join the group and then we let the group kind of have its own its own life there. If you want to reach out to the company, Watchmen at FortalistSolutions.com. On Twitter, I'm Tracker Payton. That's the, probably the place I'm the most active as far as social media goes. Certainly, I'll accept your invite on LinkedIn, but I'm not always Johnny on the spot on LinkedIn every day. If you want to book a Fortalist employee as a speaker, you can email Watchman at Fortalist Solutions. If you want to book me, I'm booked through Kepler Speakers Bureau, and you can call them or email them, and they'll kind of they manage my calendar and Make sure I go from point A to point B on time. Teresa, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. You are a soulful CXO. Well, Rebecca, back at you and uh, keep up the great work. You do so much to give back to the community and the greater good. So I'm really proud of you. I'm proud to know you, Rebecca. Thank you, Teresa. It's, it's an honor to, to hear those words from someone of your stature and I hope you'll be back on the show again. It's so great to see you and glad that we both got through 2020 okay. Yep, same. And uh, be healthy, be safe, and be well.